We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. How do we navigate grief in a world that does not want to talk about death and either medicalizes loss or wants to usher us out the other side as quickly as possible, normally with a pat on the hand and a slippery compliment about our strength? So I was pleased to read Good Grief, Embracing Life at a Time of Death, which is both a memoir and a self-help book. It has been written by my witness, Catherine Mayer, whose husband, Andy Gill, was the co-founder of the post-punk group Gang of Four, who died at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Her stepfather, John, died just 41 days before him, and the book features letters from her mother to her departed husband and chronicles what she calls their twin widowhood. Catherine is also the co-founder of the Women's Equality Party and the Prima Donna Festival, which gives prominence to women. So, Catherine, welcome to The Meaningful Life. Tell me a little bit about Andy and your stepfather, John, so we can get a sense of these two important people. People use that expression very lightly about people being larger than life. In a certain way, both John and Andy merited that description. They were incredibly warm people, They were those sorts of people that make you feel better just for sharing a space with them. In Andy's case, he was also one of the funniest men I have ever met. He could have been a stand-up comic. He could have also been an artist. He studied fine art and his visual sense was incredibly developed. But he, of course, picked up a guitar, taught himself to play it in a way that He is recognised in musician circles as being one of the most important guitarists who ever lived. And he also, with his band Gang of Four, which had its first big hit in 1979, but he was still touring with the band at the time of his death, they kind of redefined music in many ways. They stripped it back and pared it down. And it was very political music as well in terms of the lyrics. And your stepfather was a creative man too, wasn't he? Yes, he was somebody who would have really wanted to spend his life being a creative person, but the circumstances of his upbringing and background meant that, for example, he had to turn down the opportunity to study music, which is what he wanted to do, and go to work. So he didn't go in for higher education. He went straight into the workforce and for a long time worked in the insurance industry. And then he did that thing of having a kind of major second life, which is, you know, he retired still young enough to establish himself as a painter. And um, he uh, spent the last decades of his life very happily, both kind of getting involved in the arts in other ways. He was on um, several different advisory boards and that kind of thing for arts organisations, but he painted. He had his own studio and he would have exhibitions and he he became a very good painter. So how did you and Andy meet and what did you think of him when you first met him? (laughs) I laughed because he actually made me laugh when we first met. We met in an era that seems so distant now. It was in the run-up to a financial crash, but at a time when it felt the opposite, where everything felt like it was booming. In fact, it was only a kind of small section of the population that was enjoying that boom. And we met at a flat that was sort of symptomatic of that boom. It was an extraordinary place with a suspended swimming pool in place of one of the walls of this enormous sort of (laughs) warehouse kitchen. And it turned it into a sort of human fish tank because people were jumping into the pool. And of course, it being the period it was, they were jumping in naked. And there was this huge buffet in front of this 
spectacle of the naked people. And I saw this extraordinarily handsome man who was wearing a very kind of exotic outfit of white jodhpurs and a sort of tailcoat. And he had a whole bowl of trifle under his arm and he was scooping out the trifle with his hand. And I started laughing at him and we started talking and he persuaded me to come up onto the roof because this place had a huge roof terrace. And I came up onto the roof with him, at which point he sang me up on the roof. Uh And we stayed there for hours talking. And he turned out to be Andy Gill from Gang of Four. And I had actually got his albums, but I had no idea who he was. I was just, as I say, he was ridiculously handsome. Anybody interested, you know, Google what he looked like as a young man. He had cheekbones you could cut your hand on. (laughs) And it seems a pity not to be able to leave you at that particular place because it sounds like magic. So let's move on to the subject that we're here to talk about, which is uh, grief. I thought it was important to really actually understand who this person was. So um, and I'm feeling a little bit emotional. Uh, the transition from one topic to another. Your stepfather died just before the pandemic, and then Andy at the beginning. How did COVID complicate everything for you? Well, actually, it's quite possible that my stepfather died of COVID, and it's very likely that Andy did. But you're right in the way that you phrase it. So just to explain what happened, Andy's band, Gang of Four, was touring in the Far East, including China, in late 2019. And of course, the official timeline for COVID, still unchanged, is that it was supposedly just only in Wuhan until sort of the beginning of 2020. But actually, there's a huge amount of hard evidence to say that that's a nonsense. And in May 2020, the French government announced that they had been testing blood samples taken in hospitals in 2019 and had found evidence of live infection in 2019 in France. And at that point, I contacted St. Thomas's, the hospital where Andy died, and said, you may think I'm mad, but is it possible that Andy actually had COVID? And they said, Yes, not only was it possible, but that's what they were investigating and they just hadn't contacted me to let me know. So the reason I'm saying that is that what happened as it unfurled also had this element of huge surprise and confusion. So Andy got back from China. We went to see my mother and stepfather. My stepfather then died very quickly of what on his death certificate it's described as hospital-acquired pneumonia. And I knew that Andy wasn't well. He had what appeared to be the flu, but then he sort of got better again. And I was anyway, obviously, deeply distracted because of supporting my mother, who was 86 at the time. And my sisters and I were trying to help her with everything. And what Andy and I did decide to do was to go with one of my sisters to Italy as planned for New Year. And when we went to Italy at New Year, Andy got so ill suddenly again, he he had a sort of relapse that by the time we got back to England on the 2nd of January, he couldn't walk across the airport and I had to get a a wheelchair for him and somehow manage both of our bags and a wheelchair to even get him across the um, airport. But when we got home, he refused to go to hospital. He had lots of reasons for doing that, including something we might possibly discuss later, which is a a kind of denial that kicked in with him, a, a denial of illness and death that was incredibly strong in his case, and a fear of hospitals. But there was a professional reason, which was he was touring with his band. He was in the final stages of finishing an album. He was booking new tour dates and he was also in a dispute with some early band members and he was worried that they would misuse this or that any news of him being ill would be used to in some way disrupt 
the work that he was doing. So he wanted it kept secret. He resisted going to hospital. And then finally, one day I found him sort of almost, well, blue, really. And I insisted on calling an ambulance. And he went into hospital in late January of um, 2020 and died in February 2020. And then to answer the question you originally asked about how COVID complicated any of this, I mean, my mother and I were very lucky in one respect, which is we were able to be with our husbands when they were dying. Yes. But where we were not lucky is that our husbands died and then we went, you know, just a very short time later into full lockdown. And it was that early lockdown where, first of all, we were all scared of killing each other at that point, I think. My mother and I were both left living on our own, so our isolation was very complete. The other thing, of course, is that COVID disrupted all of the institutions that we needed to be dealing with in practical terms. So, yes, it was a lot. Because it's something I've been very aware of, because my father died, mm, let's see, end of November of last year, so more towards the tail end of COVID. But normally, everybody comes together after a funeral, everybody gathers round. And the reason why we do this is because there's a deep human need for it. And you were cut off from that. The whole family gathers round and supports you and sits with you. You were sitting there alone. And that, I would imagine, was profoundly difficult. It was. I mean, I did something that I only realised in retrospect was not I, I kind of thought it was both healthy and a form of self-preservation. In retrospect, I realise it was extreme, which was, I don't know if you remember, but the original set of rules, you know, you weren't allowed to associate with anybody outside your household. They didn't even have the bubble that came later where you could, if you were a single person, at least bubble with another household. So I was so isolated that I took very literally this thing about um, you could have one slot where you went out per day to exercise. And they initially said it would be an hour, but then they said it can be as long as you like, but you can't travel any distance for it. So I just started walking further and further every day. And it was only when my toenails started falling off and I had, you know, I got very, very thin that I realised that I was probably taking this to an extreme. And I, I look back at the sort of distances I covered back then. And, you know, I was regularly walking well over 20 kilometres a day. Gosh. And I didn't really even feel it physically. There's a, a strange thing with grief, which I've noticed many times, where your body becomes almost insubstantial. You feel like you don't need sleep you feel like you don't need food. And so I was sort of floating all over London, except of course I wasn't floating because as I say, eventually my feet, you know, I had to, at a point of course, where we couldn't see our GPs either. I got um, to a point where one of my feet was in a really bad state and I had to sort of get medical attention for it. One of the problems of dealing with grief is that somehow you become public property at that point. You know, everybody seems to have an opinion on your grief. The fact that you weren't seeing people, did that sort of mean that you got less or because everybody suddenly started contacting everybody from that long time ago, you got more policing of your grief? Well, it's complicated in this case because Andy was a public figure. So when he died, his death actually was a news headline on apparently on the six o'clock news, the 10 o'clock news, all of that. And he trended on Twitter for several days. Mm. And so for most people, when there's a death, the first thing they have to think about doing is how to tell people how to break the news. Mm. I didn't have that problem. I had the opposite problem, which is that many, many hundreds of thousands of people found out about it at once. And people who I didn't know at all felt that they wanted to contact me. And it was all very well-meaning, but it meant a kind of unmanageable volume of 
messages and approaches and some very odd ones, including a fan that managed to get my phone number and ring me crying on the first day after he died. And it, so I had that issue. But I certainly, in terms of grief being policed, my mother and I both found the same thing, which is both of us responded to loss by being apparently very functional. And that disturbs people a lot. Neither of us wanted to cry in public. Both of us were practical. In my case, I have a streak of black humor a mile wide, so I would make deeply inappropriate jokes. And, you know, people were always telling me I needed to cry more, to which if this were a podcast that one could swear on, I would swear quite colourfully. It is one that people have sworn on before (laughs) now, so if you feel so moved, we will understand. Mm. The thing I hated was the sentences that started with the words, at least. Oh, yeah. With your dad, I bet you got a lot of that. That's the thing with older people. There's a lot of, at least he had a good innings. Or at least he's not suffering anymore. Yes. Or at, oh. at least it was quick. Or you know, <sighs> at, at least he got to see his great grandchildren, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's sort of all sort of minimising and packaging away your feelings. And I'm I'm sorry, I don't want my feelings minimised and packaged away. Thank you. I agree with all of that. But my pet hatred, again shared with my mother, was a different thing, which was the absolute demand that you show your feelings. So I was talking about the sort of you need to cry more, but the question we really didn't like, though it depended the tone in which it was asked, was, and how are you? (laughs) You know, I mean, one of the things you're trying to do in early stage grief is be functional and kind of choose when you're not. And you don't really have that choice because you are a basket case and you are going to break down, uh, very, very odd things will trigger you. You'll be okay one moment and just sobbing the next. And what you don't want to do is have people demand that you trot out your feelings for them. That's not helpful. You know, it might be a moment where what you're craving is something that feels like normalcy. And that question sends you right back into the darkest and most painful places that you perhaps want a bit of respite from. And that was, I think, the other thing about being in lockdown is if you only have your company, or I would see under the rules of that first lockdown, I would go around as the only one of my sisters to visit my mother, but only at a distance, shrouded in every single bit of protective clothing I could get. And that was to help her around the house with things she couldn't do, but we weren't allowed to socialise and certainly not to hug or anything like that. And we need human contact at a time of grief. I mean, a hug is like gold dust, isn't it? It is, although it depends who it comes from. I mean, another (laughs) funny thing for me, and if anyone's listening who did this to me, I don't mean this nastily, but it was just sort of funny, is just before that first lockdown, it was all the kind of stuff around International Women's Day, which is in early March, and but it's kind of stopped being a day and has turned into International Women's Month. And so I kept going to events where people knew me from the Women's Equality Party. And so complete strangers kept coming up and giving me hugs. And we already at that stage knew that COVID was a danger. And First of all, I kept thinking people were going to kill me by doing it, but also that felt very invasive. Again, that's a bit like, how are you? That kind of gesture can break down the defences that you have. And so it's not a thoughtful thing to do because, you know, it's really, this is a really hard thing because what I don't want to do is make people scared to reach out to people who are grieving because the thing that's almost worse than policing grief is the people who ghost people who are grieving or who are so scared of saying the wrong thing that they don't do anything. So it is better to get it wrong than not to try. 
Well, what I would suggest is actually asking, you know, would you like to share a hug at this point? Because actually, sometimes the person who's actually about to give the hug is actually wanting a bit of comfort themselves by comforting you sort of kind of thing. So I think, you know, would you like to share a hug? And then people can say no, rather than just lurching in. No, I agree with you. I mean, I did have some funny ones where there was one point where I was crying and somebody gave me a hug, but then took a selfie. (laughs) 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 Which, you know, had the benefit of making me laugh for several days afterwards. (sighs) So, I mean, one of the things I love about the book is because you are a writer, you bring a writer's touch to this. And so I think what I'd like to do is just for you to read out an excerpt, which I think brings together some of the complexity of these feelings. So would you mind reading for us? No, not at all. So this is just a, a very brief passage from the second chapter of the book. These days, grief is my familiar a shadow I know as well as myself. That is to say, not quite as well as I think. Some days its shape-shifting ways still surprise me, the bruise that inflicts bruises. My spatial awareness is shot. Yesterday I walked into a table. This morning I took a break from writing this chapter and in the kitchen, beneath a new portrait of Andy created in tribute to him by the street artist Shepherd Ferry, danced, sobbing, to Up on the Roof. Another day, grief might sit on my chest, immobilising me in an echo of Andy on his last day at home, laid out and struggling for breath. It isn't an easy companion, is no substitute for the companionship it replaces. Yet it is more than the price of love. It is love. We, the bereaved, must learn not just to live with it, but to make it welcome. That is just so moving and beautiful. Thank you very much for sharing this with us. What were the differences and the similarities between your mother's experience and your experience? Because obviously you're different generations. So one of the reasons I ended up writing this book is because my publisher came to me very early on and I'd written a couple of blogs about Andy and she said, oh, you've really got to do a book. And I said, it's way too early. I don't want to, but you've got to publish these letters my mother's writing. And my mother had started writing letters to John as a way of trying to deal with the terrible reality of her situation. And so she was writing to him about all the extraordinary and awful things that had happened since he died. And they are amazing letters. So I showed them to my publisher and my publisher said, I would love to publish these, but you need to write the book that goes around them, which is why I did it. But the reason I did it and Again, this is a slightly long answer to your question, but I was very aware with my mother that the key difference between her and me is that at my age, I can think in many practical ways about rebuilding my life and what I might do with the years left to me. When you are 86, as my mother was, you are staring down the barrel of your own mortality in very real ways. So the idea of reinventing yourself is much more difficult. And that, you know, if my mother and I were so lucky, we were both married to people we love for many decades, but then their absence presents this very direct challenge of reinvention. So for me, I think the idea of creating a new and fulfilling life of some kind was just so much of an easier prospect than it was for my mother. And that to me is the biggest single difference. But then there are also other things like, you know, I'm a digital native. My mother was plunged into a world which was exacerbated hugely by COVID and the fact that you couldn't see people in person that expected her to be able to complete all of her sadmin, all the probate and everything else by using online forms and smartphones. And, you know, if you want to see people, well, get on Zoom. Well, for somebody her age, that was really not easy and it still isn't. So let's have a little excerpt from your mother, because I think it's really important to hear her voice. And this is sort of almost a companion piece to the piece that you read out. So this is the last paragraph of the first letter that she wrote to him. This is just 
a month after he's died and she's written this incredible letter to him kind of going, you won't believe what's happened in the world. You've lost your beloved son-in-law and this strange virus is killing people. It is weird, but writing this letter to you has brought me profound consolation. You are such a special person. And although you are no longer here, writing makes me feel connected. On the famous day we met in the Manchester wine bar, Cellar V, you appeared to be a typical middle-aged, middle-class, slightly provincial businessman in your smart suit with glass and cigarette in hand. How wrong I was. As we peeled away your onion layers, the real John slowly came into view, a man who was artistic, clever, passionate, caring as well as well-versed in the manly arts of gardening, DIY, shoe and silver polishing. You loved me as I had never been loved, and I returned that love for more than 40 years. Sorry, sorry, it's making me cry. No, that's, you are that's missed, okay. You are missed by many, but most sorely by me. I talk to you every day. I am doing my best, my darling. Love, Anne. Sorry. No. I'm, I'm back with you. Tears, <sighs> tears are fine. This is a podcast where it's okay to do whatever you need to do. Yeah, I, I'm trying not to do it though. <laughs> well, let me tell you that um, you know I have been there. I lost my partner, my first partner, when I was 37, which is over 20 years ago, which got me basically on this journey of uh, the meaningful life. Um, I did manage to reinvent myself, but I do understand that. And in fact, I thought that I would read you something from my diary. Oh, thank you. So this is from uh, Thursday, the 12th of June, 1997. So this is quite a long time ago. Engrossed in writing an article on celebrities and their relationships with their dogs, I sensed something behind me. The air disturbed, a muffled sound, a presence, an ache almost as if Tom was about to look over my shoulder and read my writing. It felt so real, I longed to turn. Perhaps if I was quick, perhaps if I just, I don't know what. I stopped typing. I barely moved. My heart pounded. I swiveled round on my office chair, but there was nothing. Just the Turkish rug his aunt bought, the rounded door handle he brought over from Germany, the black sofa bed we bought together. I return to my article, but I can't decide. A time slip, a haunting, my road to Emmaus. And that's the problem. They're sort of, you put it absolutely beautifully, that they are nowhere, everywhere, absent and omnipresent. Yes, exactly. I basically think that's a good thing. One of the other things that people who haven't experienced this will try and urge you to do is to get rid of reminders, to banish them, to excise them from your life. Not only as if that were possible, but as, as if it were desirable, and it absolutely isn't. So now that passage you've just read is incredibly familiar to me. I think that's exactly why I just cried about that thing my mother wrote, uh, rather than crying at my own passages, because it's so much part of daily life. You know, if by the way, if he were here, he'd be telling me to stop crying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm afraid to say I'm the opposite. I would just say <laughs> I did another podcast on this subject, and the interesting thing that the guy said was actually, instead of going away from our pain, run towards it and to actually embrace it. Well, I talk about in the book about embracing grief, which is, I think, slightly different to embracing pain. I think you embrace grief because grief also includes the love and the actually enormous comfort of the fact that they're still there in the sense not, you know, I don't believe in an afterlife, but they're there in the sense of being a part of life. Now, exhaustion was the biggest surprise for me after my partner died, and I was in my late 30s. What surprised you about <laughs> grief? Oh, God, so many things. You mentioned the sort of exhaustion. 
For me, as I said, it's rather the opposite, but I already knew this strange thing that it does to me of I am filled with some kind of crazy energy. And so my big problem is learning how to sleep and eat again, because those are the two things that I too easily lose. But this time, because I mean, the thing to say is I had lost so many people before I lost John and Andy. So grief was not unfamiliar to me, but obviously losing Andy is, is on a whole nother level. But the physicality of grief, I think, is a constant surprise because it also takes different forms. And this time around, I had strange ones. Like I'd always heard about this idea that people's hair turns silver overnight. And then I woke up one morning and I had this huge streak of silver in my hair. Gosh. And I also, having not felt my body at all, and having done all those long walks, I suddenly sort of got repaid in joints that decided to start playing up. So I've had to really kind of make an effort to, you know, I, I do things that I never did before. Like I spend time in the gym now because I, when I ended up finally seeing a doctor, when we could see doctors face to face, they told me that I'd literally wasted my muscles. And so I've been having to build back up again. I think for me, one of the big surprises with grief is that it is, it's not a surprise exactly, but what's surprising is the intensity of the physicality and the bizarre phenomena. As I say, who, who knew you really can turn silver overnight? But I'm very, very active. I'm doing a ton of different things. I'm also, I campaign with COVID bereaved families for justice, for example, as well. So my activism is, is as intense, if not more so than it always was. I'm in the process of writing another book right now. And in fact, that book, which I would tell you what it is, but I can't, it cut across another one. I was right. So I was already writing one book and then a publisher came in and has got me to write another. So I've got two books on the go at the moment. And all of that, you know, yes, you can call that reinvention or doing more of what I was doing, plus the music. But the bit where I absolutely haven't figured it out is the personal life. I don't want to be one of those people who is so outward directed that I ignore that need. And I have wonderful friends. Sorry, but, but, but there will always be a gap. And um, one of the things you realise is you, one of the things about a partnership that, like the one Andy and I had, is we didn't have to question anything about that side of life. We knew that whether, you know, it's not, I'm not saying we always got on, we didn't. We, we sometimes fought like hell, though we mostly had a very harmonious relationship. But we always knew that we were the most important person to the other. And it doesn't matter how good your friends are. You are not the most important person to them. You're always going to be a little bit of an outsider. So, sorry. So things like um, who you're going to go on holiday with, for example. I mean, as it happens, that's the thing I haven't done anything of. I have not had a holiday, and I don't mean that as a kind of like, at this time of terrible cost of living crisis and everything, I don't mean a kind of, oh, I haven't had a holiday, I haven't seen a beach, I don't mean anything like that. But what I mean is, I haven't done anything which is just about lying around the place, reading papers, being quietly with people just for the fun of it. That doesn't happen. So, I need to address that at some point. I am, however, way too busy to address it properly at the moment. So that's not me. I'm not deliberately sort of avoiding it. I'm very aware of it. And it's very much on my agenda to do. I recognise what you're saying 100%. Shortly after uh, my partner died, Princess Diana died and nobody phoned me. You know, normally you sort of phone something when something big like that happens, everybody phones somebody up to say, My gosh, did you see what happened and what do you think? And all those other things. And nobody phoned me. 
you suddenly realise that, you know, rather than being at the centre of somebody's life, you were on the edges of lots of people's lives. And that was really painful. I actually went on holiday my, on my own on two occasions just because I couldn't cope with the idea of people wondering how the widower was doing. <laughs> and, you know, I could actually step out of it by going on holiday on my own. But that was the first time I'd been on my own for on holiday for pff, over 10 years. Whew. <laughs> Interesting, by the way, that your 1997 story, you know, that that's when you discovered grief was 1997, because that, you know, same year as Diana died. Yeah. Also, when I first really discovered grief, because um, Andy was working with the musician Michael Hutchins, and Michael and Paulie Yates had, of course, at that stage, you know, older older people were remembered. One of the funny uh, things uh, is uh, that uh, was such a huge story and people don't know who they were anymore. I know who they are. Well, so Andy was working with Michael and the interest in their relationship and the, you know, tabloid harassment was so intense that their worlds shrank and basically Andy and I were some of the very few people who were on the inside of this very strange bubble that was in some ways a very lovely bubble and, you know, we had good times, but there was this horrible, hostile outside world. And it led to a kind of intensity in those relations that then when everything went wrong, and of course Michael was found hanging on the back of a door in a hotel room, and it was this huge news story, and we were godparents to Michael. We we are, as well, I don't know what tense to use here. I am the godmother to Michael and Paula's child, and I was very close to the other sisters. And it was this moment of extraordinary grief. And again, funnily enough, it means that my first moment of such intense grief was also one that was in the public eye, mm. where... It was so invasive and intrusive and people thinking it was a story rather than real human beings. It was fascinating and horrible. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Let me tell you about my Substack newsletter. I'd love my The Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mix of relationship advice and my thoughts about building a meaningful life. I'm hoping that as it grows, it becomes a shared space somewhere you can tell me your thoughts and suggest ideas for new podcast episodes. You can find out everything at themeaningfullife.substack.com, so please do sign in. Also, will be details in the show notes. Now, one of the things that we do here on The Meaningful Life, if, if you write in, I will discuss with one of my witnesses your letter. And this is the one I thought would be best to share with Catherine. It is the hardest thing I have ever had to admit. I feel lonely. Sure, I have friends and that's wonderful, but my girlfriends are available only Monday to Friday. At the weekend, they belong to their families. It's the same with classes like yoga and meditation, which are mostly weekday events. Sometimes I dread Fridays and the long stretch of time alone. Perhaps it's a knock-on from the COVID times where I have exhausted my coping strategies, but it feels like I need something deeper than what I've done before. Go on dating sites, do courses, make contact with old friends. Perhaps it is my age, 52, but the loneliness feels more structural, although I'm not certain if that's the right word. Perhaps I put too much energy into my work and there's little left over for anything or anybody else. All these thoughts flying around and I'm not certain where I'm going, but I worry that I'm whining on about nothing. What do you think? Hmm. Well, it touches a lot on what we were just talking about, about being at the edge of people's world rather than the centre of it. So I certainly don't think she's whining about nothing. I think that that is a lonely place to be and structural loneliness is a good phrase being at the edge of people's world. But I also think I would say you would never have found enough in dating sites or courses or even friendships. Although I said 
activism is not, or, you know, activity is not enough. One of the things that made Andy and my relationship work for as many years as it did was that both of us understood that you can't rely on anyone other than yourself in the end to give meaning to your life. And Mm. you can't even look for that, I think, in your romantic partner. You know, I've seen parents do it with their children. It becomes oppressive if you expect somebody else to give you meaning then you are asking too much from them. And so I think the real thing that I suspect is missing from her life is something where she actually feels it has a deeper meaning. And that's a difficult one because you can't kind of prescribe to somebody what that might be. For me, very much I find meaning in doing, doing things that feel constructive, that will I hope, make the world a better place or a brighter place or that will, you know, fix some kind of problem that I can see. I'm not saying that's for everyone, but I I think people find things that give meaning, but they have to find it and it cannot be entirely for other people. But this is not, if I hope this doesn't sound unsympathetic because I absolutely understand and feel what is being described here. I agree with you 100% that I think that often when there's a problem, we need to go deeper. And what you're doing is going deeper. And I think that behind this letter is a sort of a sense that there is something deeper. I mean, you put it as activism. It might be some kind of spiritual element to it as well. But I've got some sort of psychological things to say. I worry that I'm whining on about nothing. And as a therapist, I would say, you know, is that something that is a regular feeling of yours? Was this a message that you were given when you were young that, you know, you're not allowed to complain? You're supposed to sort of march forward with a big smile on your face. You're not allowed to listen to yourself because that's what you're doing. Were you getting those kind of messages? Because it could be that you need to listen to yourself more. There seems to be some ideas here that are bubbling under the surface. They haven't quite come up. But maybe they're not coming up because of these messages being given when you're younger. The other thing I would say is I think friendship is an art. And I don't think we necessarily know how to do the art of friendship. I I wonder what you think, Catherine. Do you think friendship is an art? And if it is, what are some of the cornerstones of the art? I think it is an art in the sense that it's like other forms of relationship, something that you have to work at. And, you know, an asymmetrical friendship is not one that has as much value as one that is balanced. You know, and you can't always meet like with like. So there can be, for example, economic imbalances in friendships where one person can always buy the meal and the other one can't or whatever. So it's not about that kind of balancing, but it's about are you bringing as much into this as the other person? Are you giving as much as you're taking, in other words? Yeah. And when when I talked about having very good friends, I have friends who, who are just extraordinary in terms of how supportive they have been and also how well they have understood how to support me without me asking them, which is, I think, an interesting one. Because again, you don't want to be put in a position of testing friendships by having to ask for stuff, particularly not in the kinds of circumstances that, that I've been through. And they sort of knew what I needed without me even knowing myself what I needed. And I would hope that I would be able to do the the same thing for them at different times or, or something similar for them at different times. But maybe one of the arts of friendship is having difficult conversations so that rather than thinking friendship all has to be sort of light and fairy tales and unicorns, that when there are problems, you actually speak up about them rather than just sort of letting things go. And often when you just let things go, you're ultimately just letting the friendships go. What do you think about that? I think that's true. And I also would say Interestingly, that the women who are central to my life, if I just take three of them, they're all people where 
our friendships have been tested in quite extreme ways. So the idea that we wouldn't have those discussions. I mean, I mentioned the moment where we could bubble and I was able to bubble with my best friend. And when I say my best friend, she's my best surviving friend because we had another friend who died of cancer and she herself had cancer. And in the same week as Paula died, this other friend who died was diagnosed with cancer and the friend who survived was diagnosed with cancer. And I was the only one who didn't have cancer or, you know, or a death, you know, didn't die. So the surviving best friend and I are incredibly close, both in the way that people are who have been friends for very many years, because we met when we were 17, but also because we're survivors. And you know, I mentioned the whole Michael and Paula thing and being a, a godparent. One, one of my sister godparents and I went through the whole of the thing of Michael's death and Paula's death and all of the nonsense around that. And we're very, very close as a result and talk to each other and see each other all the time. And then Sandy Toxvig, who I co-founded the Women's Equality Party with, Sandy is is an extraordinary friend. And she has something which is a kind of almost dangerous thing on her part, which is she does what she wants to make everything better for people all the time. That is her big impulse. It's why it's why she's such a lovely broadcaster to watch, is because what you're seeing is somebody who is intensely kind and has a a desire to heal. But I have to say, sort of being, you know, she and I have had to navigate all of the pressures of starting this crazy thing of a political party, dealing with all sorts of kind of difficult situations arising out of that, including sort of hostile press and a lot of trolling and worse than trolling. And we just sort of all the time, we just make each other laugh. We are perfectly capable of, you know, getting absolutely hysterical with laughter, often in the middle of the most challenging circumstances you can imagine. And she came when Andy was dying. She came to the hospital. And, you know, this might sound bizarre, but it was actually sort of wonderful and awful as she was about to go on a tour, because that was in the days when people didn't realise tours were going to be cancelled. And she basically tried out some of the routine on Andy in a coma. (laughs) Um, And like, but the the doctors and nurses and support staff and everything in that ICU ward who so rarely get any kind of sunlight in their days. It was also such a a moment for them as well. Mm. So thank you for being a witness today on The Meaningful Life. You've began to answer the question, what makes your life meaningful? But let's lay it all out. Hmm. Well, activism, I suppose. But activism that's a word that people associate with um chaining yourself to fences yeah i mean i've actually never never done that but i might be doing that soon cuz um in the queen's speech there was a bill that would make that a criminal offence and there are so many restrictions on the public right to protest that i will be very tempted this is exactly the form my activism takes is I see something that I think is wrong and then I want to do something about it. And, but Good that is you. also, I mean, so Prima Donna Festival, for example, that arose out of a very joyous occasion. Andy and I were staying with music industry friends and they were talking about the fact that they ran music festivals on their rather giant country property on the grounds there. And, this amazing woman called Jane, Jane Dybal. She's a, she is a force such as one rarely encounters. And she said she was enjoying the spoken word elements of the festivals they were running. And um, did I think there was room for another spoken word festival? And I was shouting yes before the sentence finished, because as an author, I had gone round from one book festival to another, seeing the same people on stage with me, but also the same audiences. And it was a kind of 
very lovely people, but a lot of kind of the white middle class audiences talking to the white middle class audiences. And it was brought home to me because every time there was a panel on diversity, they'd ask me to appear on it. And I mean, I only represent a very limited form of diversity. And uh, I would be on with, the, if I said yes, I'd be on with the same kinds of people. And so we set out to create a festival that instead of replicating other festivals would tear open festivals to new audiences, new people on stage, people who very often get uh, marginalised and yet are the most interesting people to listen to. And it's the most joyful thing. It is such fun. It is like the best, best fun, this festival. And so that to me is is meaningful, is to realise something that can create change, but it doesn't have to do it in a worthy, po-faced sort of way. And it's actually doing something bigger than you. I think that there's some element of that that is meaningful. Yeah, well, it's not about you. So, I mean, one of my things is I'm I'm actually happiest, and this is probably why I have coped with widowhood quite well, is I am instinctively, in spite of having in many ways such an outward facing life, I'm very, very solitary by nature in lots of ways. And I'm happiest when I'm writing. And the reason I'm happiest when I'm writing is because even like when I wrote the memoir, it wasn't really about me. It was about Andy. That's a love story. And most of the time when I write, it takes me away from anything that is the kind of you know, like, you know, when you get neurotic, when people are neurotic, it's very often about stuff that is troubling them that really shouldn't trouble them. That's why it's called, you know, that, that's why we talk about it being neurotic. It's because it's, it's fixating on things that don't matter and missing the things that do. And for me, writing is something that takes me so completely out of myself and away from myself. And it is me but it's me creating something. It's me being productive. And that, that is when I'm happiest. So I, I understood that a long time ago, that I'm happiest when I'm doing or making or in some way doing something that it might involve me, but it, but it isn't about me. Well, thank you very much for being a witness today. The conversation doesn't end here. We're going to find out the three things that Catherine knows to be true. We're going to find out more about the Gang of Four and other projects that are on their way. And if you want to subscribe and hear all of that, you can go to my website. Details of that coming on in a moment. If you are an Apple listener, you'll find there's a button where you can subscribe there. And the same thing with Spotify. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.